Podcasts by artists for artists. We talk cash shit about everything. Sometimes we get messy, and it all counts as art because we say so. I'm Mel. I'm an artist. I'm a woman. Oftentimes, I am black. Sometimes simultaneously, contrary to popular belief. This week, I'm a traveling research assistant for the updated version of the Green Book, a professional clown, and I also have a side gig as a forensic accountant for Wesley Snipes. <laughs> Melanie really enjoys doing her intro. I need to I need to start spicing mine up. Um, I'm Maximiliano, and <laughs> for those of you wondering how to support Nat Turner Project, here is how: we have a Patreon page where you can become a subscriber and get access to all of our exclusive content. Um, we have zines, buttons, exclusive podcast episodes. We also have an Etsy page where you can buy our merch buy our publications, buy totes, buttons, um, get all your NTB merch. We have an iTunes page, leave a review. Um, you can find the podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, Stitcher, and you can follow Nat Turner Project at Facebook and Instagram. And if you have any questions, art-related, otherwise, send them to Project 0 at gmail.com, and we will read them on the air, and then we will answer them. Thanks, Max. Okay, so today, in light of everything that is happening, all of the things, uh, we decided to reach out to someone who is perhaps a bit more in touch with what has been going on uh, on the front lines, both behind and in front of media cameras. So today we will be speaking with the board president from Don't Shoot Portland. Good afternoon, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well. How are y'all? Uh, well, I mean, you know, it is what it is. That seems to be a popular phrase right now for reasons. <laughs> um, There's too much going on to say how you feel about one thing at a time. Exactly, yeah. Um, Max, can you read a little bit about Don't Shoot Portland? Yes. Don't Shoot Portland is black-led and community-driven. 
Founded in 2014 by Teresa Rayford, they are a direct community action plan that advocates for accountability to create social change. Their organizing and activism work include educational workshops to support the outreach of their continued advocacy as first respondents and has helped community members contribute through direct engagement and legislative value. There are a vast amount of policy-based assess- assets influenced in being, in being harnessed in their strategic building of relationships and networks used towards the shift in culture and this systemic discrimination. Activists from the front line need to be encouraged to continue frank and honest conversations around our connection with Ferguson. Race in America and its influences within politics. Known for their bystander intervention work and community advocacy, it's with great pride that at the beginning of this year, on Martin Luther King's birthday, they moved into the former Albina Arts Center in North Portland to occupy occupy this historical black neighborhood in a now heavily gentrified area. They are excited to host their educational programming, youth events, and community-based archival workshops here. All right, thank you for that introduction. Um, it is Albina Art Center. Just want to point that out. Would I say Albina? Yes. <laughs> thank you for joining us today to talk a little bit about um, Don't Shoot Portland and um, current affairs. Um, so I guess I just wanted to start out um, with like basic information and then we can build out from there. So can you tell us a little bit about what Don't Shoot Portland is um, and what they do? Yeah, and also thank you for having me. Like I just, I appreciate everything that y'all do and this podcast and for including us. So thank you first off. And um, yeah, Don't Shoot Portland, we're a community action plan. Um, We focus a lot of our programming on the youth and educating them with the tools they need to be aware of and to fight systemic racism. Um, a lot of what we do revolves around our um, legal advocacy. So we're able to help folks navigate that system as well as um, like the introduction set, our community-based archives are a pretty essential part of our work as well because we believe in bringing history to the forefront to help us organize. Great. Um, can you speak a little bit more about, um, you mentioned that you, your primary tenets are educating the youth, legal advocacy, and bringing history to the forefront. So I guess I, I would like to start with like educating youth, like how does that like play out and manifest within the context of Don't Shoot Portland? I mean, a lot of our programming ranges from uh, we've done like Juneteenth summer camps, done spring breakout, and basically it starts with just educating folks on uh, black leaders and black authors and historical figures that they may not even have known about who have paved the way for a lot of us, and their work is still not done being acknowledged. Um, And then trying to frame the history of that, of the violence, seeing how it's still present today so that people can realize once you re- once you look at the history um, and the evidence on the record, you'll see that not much has changed and what we have to do differently to actually make those changes that we desperately need. We also work with um, the City of Archives to do um, local preservation projects and sort of um, help folks 
like dive into the generations that have been here and especially Oregon's history itself. Um, there's a lot to uncover. Um, do you feel with this task of um, educating youth and bringing history to the forefront, does it feel like the there's a great deal of opposition um, against that sort of thing, that sort of education, um, just in, in terms of the way that history is kind of positioned um, in canon and in educational inst uh, institutions? Like, do you feel like this sort of like opposition or pressure against what you're trying to do in that regard? I mean, Personally, not at all. I mean, if people try to deny facts, it's like there's a reason that we demand audits and that we go through the process of presenting facts with evidence to back it up. Um, especially like recently when we published our riot control agents report. Um, that's just an another way to bring science with what we're all experiencing, um, you know, to prove that police brutality is affecting all of us mentally, physically, emotionally even if you're not participating actively in these protests, it's all, um, it's affecting all of us. And I think it's important to also have like hard proof with that, whether it be in the form of a scientific report or it's in the form of demanding audits from our local city leaders and you know, seeing how these systems can be held accountable, seeing where they failed and see where the money really goes. Um, you've also mentioned le legal advocacy, which I imagine given current circumstances, the need um, and the importance for that um, has increased by the thousandfold. Um, what does legal advocacy look right look for Don't Shoot Portland in 2020 right now? Well, right now, we currently we have um, two class action lawsuits and several injunctions that have been filed. Um, so we've really been trying to focus all of our energy on making sure that people that are down there protesting every night for the last 80 nights, um, that they're protected and that we're keeping updated on the tactics that police are using. You know, um, when the feds were in town, we updated our preliminary injunctions to include um, the force they were using. Um, you know, we filed the lawsuit against Department of Homeland Security and Chad Wolf. Um, those lawsuits are still pending we're still accepting plaintiffs um you know we're still taking them to, trial. Still taking them to trial so on, on that front that's where we're heavily focused um yes some of that brings up questions i was having as far as like um you know this idea of like uh staying constantly aware of everything that's going on from like night to night um how much like crossover or is there crossover in the um, what Don't Shoot does with like other organizations that are out protesting? Like, is there um, sharing of like information or stuff like that? Um, wait, I'm sorry. Can you reframe your question again? Yeah, I was just, I'm sorry. I was just curious about um, when you were talking about like keeping up with uh, the information from night to night um, about like potential crossover or um, work with other organizations, as in maybe like sharing information or. Um, keeping each other up to date, stuff like that? Um, so in terms of that, we don't really collaborate with any other organizations when it comes to the uh, plaintiffs. 
we've been really using just our own networks and asking people if they feel comfortable, if they've been harmed and they want to speak to our legal team. And a lot of people have reached out to us um, even before we started, you know, trying to reach out. So I think um, it's important that our, you know, our track record proves that we've been advocating for a lot of people and they feel comfortable coming to us. So we've been able to um, do a lot for folks right now just through our own efforts and connecting them with our team. How long have you um, been involved with Don't Shoot Portland? And can you talk a little bit about if your politics and ideology have shifted since you first started with the organization? So um, I've been involved for about four years. Um, I became board president a few months ago, but up until then I was the director of communications. A lot has happened in the past four years. Um, I would I would argue that exponentially, um, the shift, the shifts in political structures over the last, I would say, twenty years, um, have been at a breakneck pace. Um, have your politics since you first started shifted um, in any interesting ways, or are, are you pretty much at the same place you were four years ago? Um, I mean, politics have never really been at the forefront of my mind. I've always dedicated my life to human rights, so I don't see that ever changing or, you know, being swayed. Um, yeah, I'm still steadfast in the idea that we need to dismantle oppressive systems and build way for something new, and I believe we're closer than ever to that. Do you think that the events of the last eight months have gotten us closer to that, um, and in what way? Um, which of, like, do you mean in the past eight months, like COVID? COVID, uh, the, the current iteration of civil rights. Um, awareness. Yeah, I definitely think that um, without COVID and being forced into isolation and how that just affected all of us, um, Without COVID, I don't think we'd be seeing the uprising and the awakening that we're having right now. Um, I feel like we're all collectively experiencing um, trauma and we're trying to figure out how to heal and also resist at the same time together as a community. And uh, this is actually the first time I've really felt connected to, um, you know, others in this fight for black lives really closely and I, I think that's true for a lot of people because of this, this energy that's going on we all feel it and we're all angry so it's like the time to take action is there's no time like now with this like um <clears throat> change these like last eight months that were mentioned and um this increased awareness and maybe the idea that other people are starting to care about like black liberation or black lives does that like re um frame maybe like a potential future you see or ways don't shoot is planning on like moving forward in the future i mean we've always been about bringing the youth to the forefront so that they can build a life that you know that we all want i think that um what we're seeing right now is like a merging of new leadership and people that are equipped with the knowledge and the tools to really dismantle this and like 
start from fresh, start from new. Um, in particular, there's a group that inspires me called Fridays for Freedom, and they're marching every Friday until November. They've got a list of demands that pertains to education, um, demands of their local government, demands for the environment, and I think it's, you know, it's beautiful. There's a vision that people are shaping, and yeah, it's, it's too powerful to be ignored. And then, um, so yeah, for like a lot of what's been going on over these last few months, I've been getting a lot of my information over Instagram and seeing different like Instagram accounts and different stories um, posting this or that. And then um, in particular, I remember um, what is Riot Ribs saying that they like signed over control to don't shoot. And then the same thing happening with like the wall of moms. But I've never like fully understood um, what happened there. So I was curious about um, that. When people say Definitely. So with Wall of Bombs, uh, their first action was uh, organized by Teresa Rayford, who is the founder of Don't Shoot Portland, also my mom, little disclaimer. <laughs> um, and they wanted to know where they could best be effective. So the leader of the moms had hopped on a call with my mom. They spoke for hours. They showed up um, for uh, Shay India Harris, who was murdered on June 10th. And um, there wasn't a lot, like the police were refusing to respond. There was a lot of, um, a lot of sadness, obviously, from her family from being told that um, her daughter's death was not worth investigating because they were too busy with the protests. So we were literally in that moment seeing that black lives did not matter in Portland. And the wall of moms were like, where can we go? What can we do? So their first action was organized by Teresa Rayford to show up at the memorial. Um, what happened after that? was just a lack of um, accountability and communication. So the the formation of Moms United for Black Lives is what came out of that. And with Riot Ribs, um, unfortunately, and they published a, a press release about this as well, but before anything was able to happen, they were, you know, they took their, um, they took Riot Ribs on the road as Revolution Ribs. Um, but the reason that they couldn't continue the riot ribs name is because they were um, they were being attacked and assaulted downtown. Um, the influx of donations that they were receiving, the media attention, it you know um, it caused some internal conflicts, and it's unfortunate. But they were uh, forced to dissolve when that happened for safety. We still totally support Revolution Ribs and. Um, anyone pretending to be riot ribs on any social media, Revolution Ribs has come out and said, please don't support them. They're still asking for tips. Um, yeah, it's just, I, I would recommend no one support riot ribs to go for Revolution Ribs. They're doing some really great things on the road, feeding a lot of people still like they wanted to. At that, I think that's a good seg into the portrayal of Portland in the national media news cycle. Um, Portland has been all over the news, um, for good and bad reasons over the past few months, and I imagine will continue to, to be so. Um, how do you feel about the current portrayal of Portland, um, in the national media news cycle? Um, I mean, I know that the media only really showed, or I mean, besides local media, because they've been on the ground, um, national media only started up once the feds were here. But everyone that's been here in Portland knows that it was never about getting the feds out. Like we were, people were being brutalized and tear gassed and ran down and 
stomped on by Portland Police Bureau for months, months before, you know, um, these other guys even came into the picture. So I feel like the media is really focusing on, um, you know, when the feds came and then Portland just being this battleground of, um, you know, burning bridges and, uh, I mean, <laughs> not burning bridges, uh, burning buildings and police departments on fire and et cetera. But there's hotels open and there's restaurants open. We're taking over the bike lanes so that we can have our brunches, you know. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not surprised, though, that, you know, the, the picture, of course, is painted a little differently. Do you feel that um, having Portland in the news cycle, the national news cycle, to this degree is uh, counterproductive to um, the work of that you're trying to do on the ground? Absolutely not. Um, I believe in allies, even in the form of media, and um, we all have our place in this movement. So, um, you know, media coverage, like that's necessary. Um, at the end of the day, you can do a lot of interviews, as I found out, and you might only get one little snippet of what you were trying to say in there, and that's okay. <laughs> that's totally okay. Um, I think it's important also just for young leaders to get used to like trying to express what they're doing and their demands and what they're here for. Um, yeah, I think the coverage was fine. People needed to see what was going on and at least pay attention for a hot minute <laughs> and shine some light on, you know, I saw a lot of people being surprised uh, once they did do a little more digging about Portland and why these protests were going on for so long, and what made it unique. Uh, once they were realizing, oh, like Portland is this, Kind of crazy city um so i think that's good the more we can dispel the, the myth um that portland is like this you know super liberal but mostly white like no like let's let's say what it is <laughs> once we can say what white landia is and how fucked up it is for us to be here and being oppressed still and dealing with the genocide of our people by people that we pay um i think that's important and um I'm curious, is a goal of Don't Shoot Portland to have other, like, Don't Shoot branches in different cities, or is Don't Shoot Portland um, specific to Portland and only um, for Portland? No, we were just, uh, we are planning to stay in Portland, but we do want to, you know, collaborate and connect everyone. Black Liberation will take all of us much more than just one Don't Shoot Portland. And then how do you see um, Don't Shoot Portland fitting within, like, the context of all this uh, social unrest and this current wave of um, civil rights and black liberation? Can you repeat that? I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, how do you see, like, Don't Shoot Portland fitting in within the context of the social unrest, um, civil rights, and, like, black liberation that we're currently uh, going through? Um, I think we're, we're trying to set a standard, especially right here in Portland. Um, the work that uh, Teresa was doing before Don't Shoot became a nonprofit, um, it's led the way here. A lot of the groups that are on the ground organizing right now, um, you know, they, they cite Teresa as being their mentor, as being the one that taught them to demand audits and to show up for city council meetings and to be civically, uh, to be civic participants. Um, I think the work that we do is crucial and it does fit into what's happening right now. It's essential. Um, the fact that people go to us for information and that they can trust, don't shoot to look out for them and 
you know, and help organize. Like that's, that's the world. I mean, there's a lot of distrust. So we need to have these people that we can put our trust in. And I think Don't Shoot has proven that to our community. When we did the um, riot control agent report, um, we published that for everyone in America. Like that was a blueprint for what CS gas and tear gas is doing to our bodies during a global respiratory pandemic. Um, these studies have only been done in like low capacity. Like we need to have, this needs to be um, common knowledge. It shouldn't just be people saying that they feel these effects. Like it needs to be on the record. So we're trying to publish this information for everyone. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit more about this riot control uh, agent report and also maybe like what went into like making it or creating it. Absolutely. So we had a public health team um, put it together. So it was authored by uh, a, a neuroscientist at OHSU, a local public health consultant, a um, doctor, and then a um, a mental health um, consultant. And together they came up with the RCA report, which is a systemic reassessment of mental mental health, uh, environmental health, and the trauma and irreparable damage that folks are gonna be experiencing uh, long-term after this. And uh, a lot of this, a lot of these effects people have already been talking about just on social media, and there's been a few um, surveys going out and um, one of the things with, with CS gas is that it interrupts um, a lot of women's menstruation cycles, which is, I mean, it's a biological weapon. I mean, it's terrifying. Um, it's disrupted pregnancies, myth caused miscarriages. Um, with the LRAD, um, we had that involved as well. That causes um, damage to your hearing. There's, um, you know, migraines that you'll have for days after, weeks after. Even if you're not at the protests, um, you'll, you know, the PTSD from seeing people being brutalized in your streets, they're up in the neighborhoods now trying to seek refuge on someone's lawn and then being arrested and beaten for practicing their First Amendment rights. Um, the trauma is going very deep, and a lot of us don't know how deep it's going to go because we are not thinking about it. We're just caught up in the moment, and I think the energy is just... Um, it's taking, it's distracting a lot of people from really sitting down and sitting with yourself and realizing, oh wow, like I'm being affected by this. The the fight on the ground, um, the one that we're currently in, that's been going on for how long? Did you say like eighty days? Oh. Yeah, it's been about eighty days now. In your opinion, how much longer do you think this could potentially go on? I mean, until we have some sort of um, some sort of effort on the part of the city, because I mean, I don't know how long this has to go on, and for them to keep sending out people to brutalize folks until they realize um, maybe it, this isn't working. Like I've yet to have anyone reach out to don't shoot. Teresa's had, um, you know, no one reach out to her, and it's the ego of it all. That they would rather brutalize. They would rather brutalize these young kids because we know that these protesters aren't some wild and crazy people. Even the wall of moms and the wall of dads with leaf blowers, 
the wall of vets um even those folks like they're outnumbered by the young kids that are in the street some of these kids are houseless some of them are young and angry and traumatized like why are you still going out there and beating them up every night without a simple you know my mom's been contacted by time magazine and cnn and everyone else but ted is out there doing press conferences getting tear gassed tear gassing himself when he could literally just dial a number and find a better solution from our community we've been organizing with people across the country and we still have nothing from our own backyard yeah i would definitely say that's a glaring disconnect um in the media representation you see like the public political figures um espousing you know progress or plans and then you simultaneously see people being brutalized in the streets and there doesn't seem to be any connection between these two things um in the media which is really disturbing and jarring um i agree i'm so angry that ted can go on there and be like we don't want them here and play the good mayor and i'm like no one's done a google search like come on y'all like please. <laughs> and then recently, it seems like after the federal police, the federal agents left, and the local police started um, being the main antagonist again, that they were um, starting to resort to more violent tactics. And then it also seems that like right wing people have been able to start um, doing stuff, it seems like without any um, repercussions. So I was wondering like about evolving strategies around like handling stuff like that. Or, um, yeah, I guess, questions around that. I mean, and you're right about that uptick in the, the far-right extreme. Like, they've been out during, you know, my, a friend of mine the other day called them daywalkers because they don't show up at night because they're outnumbered. But they've definitely been in downtown spaces throwing pipe bombs and attacking people. And, yeah, there's no, um, not a peep from the cops, but also... You know, we are aware now that those federal agents that were deployed here, um, <clears throat> they were, you know, they were known racist. They were paid to be here to beat up on kids and brutalize them with military training. Um, and they included regular people, like crusty old security bouncers out here employed to beat up on people. So I definitely don't think it's a surprise that now we have an influx of far-right extremists coming down here and feeling very bold and comfortable um, attacking people in broad daylight. Like, it's it's disgusting. And you know that Portland has this history. It's not, it's not like we haven't been caught texting with, you know, K, the KKK and hanging out and going to dinners and all that. So um, it's just all, it's, yeah. But um, as for tactics for this, I think we just need to be more vigilant. We have to protect each other. We have to not be afraid to speak up and interrupt things that we see that might even be suspicious. Because the truth is, you never know when someone may be attacked. It's happening all the time. Uh, with the current, um, the upcoming election, um, something that's being kind of laid bare, I think, is this division, this unspoken, well, heretofore unspoken division with the, um, within the black community, um, in terms of politic and voting preferences and policy preferences and, uh, approaches to 
structural insti uh, and institutional racism. And I was wondering if um, you see these splinters within the like on the front lines as well like are are there echoes of that within the front lines and um within the context of this current fight um as there seem to be kind of like in general um i think that's evident throughout like all parts of our society really mm -hmm. um some people get paid to uplift to uphold the status quo and they can come from our own communities, but um, it's yeah, it's time to dismantle all of that because we got to work together. And the people, this new like our new generation, are they're not gonna have it. They know what they want, they know what they don't want, and they realize that they are the future. Like I remember, I mean, when I was some uh, some of the organizers I'm talking about in particular are. They can barely even have a drink, you know? They're like 20, 19. At that age, I was not radical enough to be out in the streets and demanding change. Um, I was just kind of at a standstill, you know? And I wanted to help, but I felt as if I wasn't gonna do as much by myself. These kids are organizing and mobilizing in ways that are just like, it's uplifting to see. And that's what this new generation wants. Like, we're not gonna keep letting uh, gatekeepers speak for us. We're not going to keep voting in people with false promises that can show up later and act like they did all the work when they were just condemning those same people that were actually doing the work, those same leaders who were there for us. Um, we're looking at track records now. Like, we're not just voting based on uh, skin color or minority or any of that. Like, everyone needs to be accountable. And, yeah, I think politics are just... Uh, you know, <laughs> they're exhausting. It's a big, you know, it's just a nepotism and who knows who and who wants to let who keep doing what they got so that you can be in that seat of power and I can let it slide. And as long as we all get paid, it's cool. Like Portland has a sick problem with that. I learned a lot about it when I, I moved back here about a year ago and that's when, uh, yeah, I was helping out on the campaign and I was like, okay. Yeah. Uh, one thing I've noticed is, uh, in as far as the political public face of Portland, uh, it's big on optics. Um, I think actual change, it's a little slow. <laughs> um, so that's been interesting. I've only been in Portland for five years, so I'm pretty new to a lot of it. Uh, but like you've mentioned several times the history of portland is fascinating um and mm -hmm. and the current marketing campaign of what portland is is directly tied to that history in a very sick way which is very strange it's nasty yeah and i tell a lot of people i'm always like yeah portland is really good at marketing itself as a you know global city and super progressive but once you start to actually look at the it's just it's it's yeah it's sick the fact that we still have geographical features in the state that have, used to say nigger and now it says negro i'm like okay that's not <laughs> that's not much better okay you put a band-aid on it you can't put a band-aid on nigger canyon is there a place in oregon called negro canyon 
there's a couple. Uh, so there's um, a local um, documentarian, Donovan Smith. I'm sure y'all are familiar, Donovan Smith. Um, yeah, he's uh, he actually just published a uh, an article with Street Roots, and he goes into Oregon's um, historical like the namesakes that they hold on to that are very racist. And I think the geographical board is trying to change some of them. They're in the process of changing a few. But, yeah, you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> yeah, I grew up... Um... It's one of the reasons... Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. No, I was going to say it's one of the reasons that we do um, the Liberated Archives programming with the city, uh, the, the city of Portland Archives. It's because we need, like, all of this history, is, it's just too important to ignore. It needs to be consistently in your face and accessible so that you can you know, really take your time with it and immerse yourself and you'll see it bright as day. We're living in the same time. We just got new power. And um, these liberated archives, are they accessible um, for the public? Not right now because of COVID, but hopefully um, once they're allowed back into their building, we can do some Zooms like we were at the beginning of COVID. <laughs> but we would basically have, the city archives are online though, and um, we would encourage people to just look up their family names. Um, you can find out all sorts of really beautiful history um, <clears throat> about communities here that, you know, have their own police bureaus and their own fire departments and yeah, all sorts of wonderful things that you would not know about. It's more than just a little, um, what is it, the little street signs they put up and be like, this is Albina. This used to be where black people were. <laughs> like, it's so much deeper than that. We have these records, we have articles, we have receipts. There are receipts. Um, one of the things I'm also interested in, and I think um, curious about as far as how it applies to Don't You, but also... Um, and I think uh, something uh, Nat Turner navigates too when dealing with uh, the youth and interested in your statements of the use of the front and then also wanting to set the standard. And then like, um, how do you, I guess like, what is the balance between um, being like a resource to like a new organization and then still like allowing them to like find their own voice or find their own selves? I mean, the kids pretty much, like, whenever we do our programming, they have free reign over every project. Like, just, um, we pretty much bring the, our thing is bringing um, accessibility so that they don't have to get used to this idea that you have to um, use an institution for access and support. Um, we, you know, we've worked with a lot of partners and they've been wonderful, but there's nothing like having your own space, which we're in the process of trying to do. Um, there's nothing like having your own screen printing equipment, uh, teaching the kids that this is their space to do what they want, um, putting them together with other artists that go to, you know, the schools around here that can do, I can teach them how to make scenes and then they create the scenes. They create the ideas behind what they want the Juneteenth summer camp to be. Um, you know, and we've, we've helped students get full ride scholarships through our projects they've done with us. And it's, yeah, I mean, um, it's just about making the tools accessible, like they should have been all along, but, you know, we taking it back. And then, We're about uh, to get a, 
Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Sorry. I was like, we're about to get a kiln. We're gonna do ceramics. We're about to teach some pottery. <laughs> like, amazing. Black art matters. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Speaking of art, I know um, Don't You currently has a exhibit up at uh, Holding Contemporary. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So basically, it's um, it's sort of like a scrapbook of the past ten years. Um, of don't shoot programming and marches. Um, a lot of it takes place in City Hall. Some of the photos are from, uh, the, you know, when we were taking the streets. You can see uh, babies growing up in strollers and then holding banners. Um, <clears throat> it's also multimedia, so we've got a loop going right now of uh, photos from the current protests. So it's bridging the gap between what happened then and what's happening now. Um, the uprisings from Ferguson, when we did our plenary here, from Trayvon Martin, Juanis Hayes. Um, we have, <clears throat> uh, we're also collaborating with a group out of Dallas called um, the Yellow Umbrella Project. And they, um, <clears throat> they basically take yellow umbrellas and they paint in black letters the name of uh, loved ones lost to gun violence. And they delivered 50 uh, hand-painted umbrellas to us, and they're beautiful, and they're all um, loved ones that have been lost in Portland to gun violence. So we uh, have those involved with the exhibit as well. And then we've been bringing flowers as well as part of um, <clears throat> like the ongoing vigils that are there too. So it's a multimedia experience. Um, yeah, it's until the 29th, um, Thursday through Saturday, 4 to 6 p.m. Um, and since we are artists who discuss art on a pretty regular basis, you mentioned the acquisition of kilns and ceramics. I'm curious about, like, whether or not, like, you've started envisioning how that would play out within programming for Don't Shoot Portland. Well, we've just been wanting to do this for so long. Um, my mom in particular, she's an artist of all mediums, and she's been wanting to do um, mugs and coffee mugs for years. So <clears throat> we're going to start having the kids give us some ideas on what they want to do. And, um, yeah, maybe we'll, yeah. I mean, we try to, we have a six-year-old artist resident right now. Her name is Kobe. And um, she's been designing zines for the last two years. And basically, yeah, since she was like four years old. So she'll probably have some great ideas. And yeah, you'll see more of that. We're just excited. So in imagining a better future, one which is reasonably inhabitable for black folks, like what do you envision? Um, and I guess the follow-up to that is, do you see this vision occurring within your lifetime? Um, I think if we can continue doing what we do on a bigger platform and just um, trying to help the victims and the children of like these families that are still living with trauma. Like a lot of the children that are in our programming have been affected by gun violence at a young age. 
So this is an outlet for them and their families to, you know, bring inspiration and hope back into what they're doing in their daily lives while also like fighting for that justice. And I think that's how we can really make, that's how social change can happen on an actual real level is by, you know, um, working through each other's trauma together in a positive way that's going to uplift us and, and empower us instead of um, to promote civic engagement. And, and um, sorry. <clears throat> and mostly just to keep promoting civic engagement with all that's going on right now. Um, it's not enough to just vote. It's not enough to just be registered. Um, you know, people really need to be uh, more adamant on their research and accountability and being more demanding of their politicians and elected officials and realizing that these are people that deserve, you know, they can answer things too. You deserve to have an answer to what you want and not to feel frightened by them just because they're in city hall or behind closed doors. Uh, you mentioned research. Do you have any recommendations, besides Google, of course, um, for how your your basic um, local citizen can find out more about their um, government um, workers and politicians and their histories and their policies? If you start with this, so once you start dismantling institutional structures, I think that is how you can start to do your research on like on individual candidates and not just going through the political party that they're associated with. So you would say even with like all the um the the ways like the systems are like stacked against people, stacked against black people, um all the corruption and um things we have to over uh, overcome that but you would still say it's still important to like vote in elections versus not voting or not participating in the political system. I'm sorry, my so on the last question too, my phone is like going. I'm in the car. Um, can you repeat your question though? I only got the end of it. Yeah, I was wondering about like with um, how corrupt political systems are, all the things, um, all the ways it's stacked against Black people, all the things uh, we have to overcome in order to like be members of this um, system you would still side with being participating in the system and like voting versus um, not voting at all and like dropping out of the um, political system. I would say over participate, take up space. Um, people died to have the right to vote. Like it would like, that's just not, yeah. It would just be absolutely disrespectful for me to not vote even if I do know it's all bullshit gotta overdo it though like make it count like don't just vote you know what i mean like if we know it's a game anyway we need to make our opinion really count we need to really get our power in there not just by voting not just filling out a census or something all right um well i think that is that's a pretty good overview and starter for don't shoot um before we go, um, we are curious, uh, what kind of art or books uh, or reading or movies or what have you are you getting into these days? Excellent. Oops, I was muted. <laughs> um, I, have two, I have two nephews 
And I actually just got them the anti-racist baby book by uh, Dr. Ibram, Kendi Ibram. Nice. Ibram. Yeah, I would recommend that because it's really cute and it's a cutout book. Oh, nice. Okay. Cool. And then I'm always reading James Baldwin or Bell Hooks. Are you? Are there any particular uh, James Baldwin readings or Bell Hooks readings that you? that resonate right now for you? Like in this uh, Yeah, I'd say The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin and Love by Bell Hooks. And I'm curious, um, since uh, we're bringing up Bell Hooks and James Baldwin, current trend I'm noticing right now is, um, and this is just what it looks like from my perspective um, with the new generation like you said they're much more um, willing to like take up the work and investigate and explore all of the options but there's also a lot more critique within that generation and I've noticed that a lot of them are calling into question kind of these sacred cows in um, in black canon black academia um, uh, black intellectia um, and I was wondering if you have any opinions about that. I know that Bell Hooks recently was under fire um, for some things that she's mentioned in the past and, and panels that she's done. And like, what do you think of like this current trend to like critique these, um, you know, kind of powerful um, academic leaders um, within uh, uh, Black Canon? I think it's good that people, you know, that we're so critiquing and, um, you know, leaders are people that we've looked up to. But also, I only, I mean, I read, I don't take it for the, you know, like, I um, I take the expression more of, I don't take the example. from their experience. I just learn from their experience that they're right, because I feel like it helps me formulate things better when I'm trying, when I'm stuck at a loss, they fill in the blanks for me. Well, I mean, that's pretty much all we've got. Oh, do you have something next? Yeah, my last question. Um, okay. What are the Sorry. ways? What are the ways people can support? All the different ways people can support. Don't shoot Portland. Um, so on our website, um, <clears throat> we do have um, a donation button, and on our link tree. Uh, we have a mutual aid Black Lives Matter spreadsheet, and it's just resources on uh, petitions that need to be signed, uh, GoFundMe's for families that are dealing with gun violence, um, a lot of different resources for people to pick up and help with, including also um, uh, phone numbers to call daily to demand justice for different families. All right, we'll link to all of those things in the show notes so that people can just click. Um, Following up uh, with Max's question, um, what would you offer as like a starter for a, a young person who wants to become more involved um, in civic engagement, especially on a local level? Um, become a PCP as soon as you're 18. Um, and that is a um, committee person. And um, <clears throat> I think it's just important to attend those meetings and start getting to know the candidates and people that are um, looking to be involved 
so that you can really be on the same level and get to know these people before you put them on some pedestal in your head because they're a politician. You can do it without meaning to, you know what I mean? It's important to see them wearing normal clothes and sitting in folding chairs. <laughs> All right, I think that's pretty much it. Max, do you have anything else? Um, no, just, yeah, thank you so much for um, taking time to talk to us. Um, for letting us interview you. We really appreciate um, your time and your generosity with everything. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'd, I'd like to reiterate that as well. Thank you for, for joining us on this random Wednesday, is it? I forget the days now. Um, <laughs> um, and talking to us a little bit about Don't Shoot Portland um, and your, your perspective on what's happening right now. Um, before we look... Yeah. Before we go, we'd like to give you the uh, opportunity to issue any parting words for our listening audience, all three of them. So. Yeah, thank you so much, both of you, for having me. I really appreciate it, especially with everything going on. It's just been overwhelming, to say the least. So um, <laughs> thank you for making time and keeping up with me on tag. But um, last notes, I would just say please read the report. Um, I'll send you a link, but it's on don'tshootpdx.org. And if anyone has been affected by tear gas, uh, less lethal munitions such as rubber bullets, um, if they've been bull rushed, if they've been beaten with batons like a lot of people have in the past week, um, since the new DA will not be prosecuting protesters, that's a new uh, development. Portland Police Bureau have been particularly aggressive um, and physical. So please contact us if you're more comfortable speaking to our legal team. Yeah, we'll definitely throw a link up for that as well. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. All right, bye. Y'all have a good day.